I'm Captain Kirk. Fascinating. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. Thank you, thank you. Love you. Most illogical. I said. Well, that was different. Yep, rousy, but different. Places, please. And here we go. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, bears, axonar, and things to episode 93 of the Muppet Trek podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Jarman, and we're here to compare, contrast, and confer about our two favorite franchises. And what are those, Steve? Oh, boy, that's the Muppets in Star Trek. Oh, yeah. We've been doing one-to-one reviews of the Muppet Show and now Star Trek, the animated series. And tonight we're covering the Muppet Show with special guest star Alan Arkin and Star Trek, the animated series episode, the Ambergris Amber element. Ambergris. <laughs> yes. Pretty close. <laughs> I think in the episode he says Ambergris, like it's French and fancy. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't guess. Know. And I, I, I totally saw the uh, Alan Arkin and I was thinking Alan Alda until the episode started. I'm like, that's oh. not Alan Alda. <laughs> that's not Alan Alda. I am outraged. <laughs> so, yeah, Steve, tell us about Alan Arkin, please. <laughs> well, Alan Arkin is an American actor, director, and writer whose career has spanned six decades, and he is still going. Yeah. Uh, he's actually won the Oscar, uh, the Golden Globe, a Tony, and two SAG Awards in wow. his long and illustrious career. But what does our audience know him from? Well, he played the dad in Edward Scissorhands and had key roles in movies like Glengarry, Glenn Ross, Little Miss Sunshine, and of course, my personal favorite, one of my top five movies of all time, So I Married an Axe Murderer. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, But what's he up to this week on The Muppet Show? Mm -hmm. Well, on stage, Kermit introduces Alan, but first, there's a trip to the South. Uh, I've got to put in that there's a negative depiction warning at the beginning of this episode, and this is the more puzzling one to me. Um, Might be the fat jokes. I wasn't sure if that was what later on in the episode, but yeah, I feel I like there have been other episodes of fat jokes at Piggy's expense. Where like it's been fine. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, we get a fiddle. A... Okay, so <laughs> I'll tell you why I think. Okay, uh, we get a fiddle band who performs "The Devil Went Down to Georgia." It's a faithful reenactment of that musical number, just acted out with puppets. Right. Uh, Kermit is trying to introduce Alan for Zippity Doodah, but he gets warned that the Bun Bun Brothers uh, gets warned so the Bun Bun Brothers hit the stage. Uh, the rabbits all sing zippity doodah in a you get there's actually a shot where you can see a guy's hand. It's one of those rare times. Oh, I think the simple inclusion of zippity doodah is the only reason that this episode gains the negative depiction warning because Song of the South was a racist movie because of Song of the South. I <laughs> I watched this movie pretty hard trying to figure out what it was, and I'm pretty sure that's it. Maybe. Yeah, it's connection to that. Huh? Um, Alan charges the stage, busting up the number. He's got monstrous teeth and he's throwing bunnies around. He's ripping up trees and collapsing the set. Uh, Fozzie hits the stage with Rolf and they sing, I got rhythm, despite the fact that Fozzie has no rhythm. That was adorable. Uh, Rolf makes a quick lyric change that turns into it. I don't got rhythm. <laughs> uh, we then find out. Uh, find ourselves on the swine track. The ship is listing to one side without explanation. And this turns into a fat joke at Piggy's expense as the ship drips with her movement. Next up, we visit the clouds with an angel who sings, you're no good. Joined by uh, her angel backup singers. And eventually the devil shows up from the opening number. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fozzie hits the stage for some joke time. He is heckled as usual and bombs as usual. Statler reveals in this exchange that he was on the Titanic. <laughs> yeah, this is canon now. <laughs> this is canon. Uh, 
Kermit introduces Muppet Labs. Uh, presumably, a Muppet Labs sketch happens that we don't see take place. Right. That's true. Because it cuts backstage. Then an older woman hits the stage wrapped in a snake singing, uh, Let Me Go. Kermit introduces Alan for the final number. Kermit asks Scooter to keep Piggy in her, in her dressing room. Alan sings the song Pig, and he is joined by the Electric Mayhem. Piggy storms the stage, hit, hits Alan, who transforms into a beastly form once more. Backstage, uh, a bunch of bunnies want to do a number, but Kermit says... Uh, no, that B- Dr. Bunsen, Honey, and Beaker accidentally show up and they've switched the, bi- the bicarbonate of soda meant for Alan Arkin with Jekyll and Hyde potion. <laughs> Alan drinks the potion, sprouting fangs and monstrous eyebrows, and he destroys part of the dressing room. He assaults Beaker and then breaks through a wall. Uh, Kermit coordinates pig hunters to capture Alan with ropes. He reverts back in the nick of time to Alan, uh, and he's heartbroken that Kermit doesn't want to see his number. He's so sad. He's so sad. Dr. Bunsen Haidu reveals the potion effects come and go. And the island transforms throughout the rest of the episode. Dr. Bunsen Honeydew later leaves a glass of Jekyll and Hyde potion for some reason backstage. (laughs) Kermit accidentally drinks it. And Kermit also transforms and assaults Alan Arkin. (laughs) Further confusing poor Alan Arkin. (laughs) Kermit thanks Alan one more time. Alan thanks Kermit. Dr. Bunsen Honeydew tells them the rabbits drank the potion. The rabbits storm the stage and attack with vicious teeth. And that is what we call The Muppet Show. So, Jarman, what did you think of this week's episode of The Muppet Show with Alan Arkin? Um, I thought there were some good moments, but I think he was kind of strangely wasted with this Jekyll and Hyde thing was a good idea, but it just didn't pan out very well because he wasn't selling it really well. <laughs> like it, he, I, I think like he felt goofy. Cause also the, it was just terrible fake eyebrows and really bad fake teeth. Like, I don't know what the deal is. What? With that. No, <laughs> it was real bad. Uh, but the devil went down to Georgia number was fun. It was really well done. And then, yeah, we'll put together. Yeah. And I really liked the, I don't got rhythm with Fozzie and Ralph. That was hilarious. I don't got rhythm. <laughs> it was really good. Um, but yeah, for some reason, just came out as a meh episode for me. Other than that, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> um, I think that. So I agree, just sort of from the opposite side. Mm. I think this had all the tenets of a good episode. It had good musical numbers. It had some of the standards, like we got uh, kind of got Muppet Labs, sort of right, uh, and we got Swine Trek. Alan was a good guest. He he did well interacting with the Muppets. True. And honestly, I liked it, but my favorite parts were when, you know, he was offended and like sad that Kermit didn't want his number on the show. Right. And like those kind of the sweeter moments on the other side of the Jekyll and Hyde bit, I think were what redeemed this episode for me. I could see that. So So I wanted to be able to act opposite end because he didn't get to do much just being performing because he's just kind of running around like a crazy person as Hyde. So when he did his song, I thought he sang surprisingly well. He said very much like Frank Sinatra kind of sound. Um, so this could have done a le- little less of him just stomping around his height. I don't know. That would have yeah, been okay. nice. That's fair. <laughs> but yeah. So overall, uh, it was okay for me. Okay. Uh, music this week. Devil Went Down to Georgia, written and performed by the Charlie Daniels Band. Yeah. Made it to the number three billboard spot, but was kept out of number one by After the Love Has Gone by Earth, Wind, and Fire mm. and My Sharona by The Neck. Wow. 
Oh, Kept yeah. it out of first place. <laughs> Zippity Doodah from Disney's 1946 Song of the South. It won the Oscar for Best Original Song. The lyrics were written to appease Disney himself, who apparently loved nonsense words. And this is also witnessed in uh, songs like Bippity Boppity Boo and Super Califragilistic Expialidocious. Oh. Those are why he liked Zippity Doodah, because it was nonsense. I Got Rhythm by the Gershwins and written for the musical Girl Crazy. Fun fact, Girl Crazy is where Ethel Merman, former Muppet Show guest, made her Broadway debut. Very nice. Let Me Go, Lover, written by Jenny Lou Carson and Fred Wise. Um, this was an, an example of an early publicity blitz that had never been seen before. Um, this song was being performed on a television program called Studio One in 1954. So its producer, a guy named Mitch Miller, stocked stores across the nation, like paid out of pocket to stock these shelves. When the program aired, he sent 2,000 of these copies to DJs around the nation, and the song became like the first overnight success in U.S. history. Oh. And that was the one the old lady was singing with the snake? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and saw uh, and it sold a hundred thousand copies in the first week, which at the time was unheard of. Wow! And it was a really random moment on the uh, on the episode. Like I was like, "Why is it this really old lady? was? It's really strange." Uh, the pig shuffle. This song was written by Alan Arkin. Yeah, <laughs> and I was unable to find a lot more facts about this. So I'll throw in the mention that uh, Alan Arkin also cameoed in the 2011 The Muppets movie with Jason Segel. Yes. He plays the tour guide. <laughs> is this the Universal Studios? Yes, it is. <laughs> That's the only line. <laughs> um, now he has a couple. He leads the tour guide and, and throws uh, glitter at them at some point. It's real fun. <laughs> Um, what what did you think was the best Muppeteering moment this week? Um, even though I wasn't a fan of the scene overall, it was a delightful chaos with the bunnies and him being hide and like throwing them all around. And they're popping out of holes and he's kicking over the set and like that. I thought that was probably my those bunnies popping out was pretty fun and crazy. That is pretty good. <laughs> what about you? Uh, I've got to give it. It definitely went down in Georgia. Ah, yes, um, that's true. Not only because it was a good effect, and I think it was just recently. I can't remember what the musical number is. It was fish. No, it was the the frogs in like jumping around running from an alligator where this same effect was done really badly. Mm. And I feel like this was the other way, the other side of that, which is that this one was executed so well. Right. Um, and something I like to point out, if you look at the devils they used, and it's so funny to see this, um, they are like proto versions and precursors to something that we will see later, much later when we eventually review the storyteller. Mm. Um, the soldier and death is one of my absolute favorites. And the devils in that are like very, are just way advanced versions of what's in this episode. And it was really cool to realize the storyteller, a TV show or a movie. It was a TV show. Oh, okay. It, it was a series though. I think it was only 11 episodes. Um, and the first one covered the first season covered like folktale, and the second season covered Greek myths. Oh, well, we'll definitely get there eventually. <laughs> eventually, in like six years, we're gonna do it <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so, Jeremy, what happened in this week's episode of Star Trek: The Animated Series? All right, so we have the ambergris element, which is nothing to do with the actual plot. Um, so, this Enterprise is sent off to explore this planet called Argo, which. Um, 
it looks like it was transformed a long time ago into a water planet by seismic activity. And they're kind of researching it so they can possibly save another planet in Federation space that has seismic activity possibly endangering it to be flooded as well. So they get down on the little boat thing, craft they have, and the aqua shuttle, as they call it. And they there's not supposed to be any life in this planet, but suddenly they're attacked by a giant sea creature. And both Spock and Kirk are knocked off the boat, and they, the shuttle goes a different direction, and they have a lengthy search trying to find them. And when they finally find um, Spock and Kirk, they're discovering that they can't breathe on land. They've been transformed into people, and they have, I guess, gills that are letting them breathe underwater and webbed hands. And so they take them onto the Enterprise and put them in a tank to try to figure out what's going on. And McCoy says they've probably been mutated somehow by an actual procedure. They can find there's actual marks in them. So Kirk and Spock convince him to let them go down back into the water to find out who did this to them. And surprise, surprise, they find an Atlantis-like civilization down there with these people who are all voiced by <laughs> Scotty. Um, and they say they call them air breathers. They want to kick them out because air breathers are dangerous, apparently. Um, but they find out that they were indeed injected and there's no way to return back to the way they were because it's illegal in their in their society to turn back to, from being mutated to fish people. Um, but eventually they, one of the ladies takes pity on them and shows them the ancient city where all their rules were made. And they are able to find um, basically a formula for how they're able to change back. And it requires the venom of the crazy sea creature that attacked them initially. So they're able to get the venom from the sea creature, synthesize a cure for the two of them, and then they're able to convince the sea people that they should also go back to being, some of them should be air breathers again, and they should come back to civilization because there's a giant earthquake that happens, and the Enterprise is able to stop the earthquake, but it causes a lot of the land to come back um, up, and so they're able to live. I'm giving a terrible reading of this. I'm sorry. No, but... this episode has a lot of stuff. It's one of my critiques of this episode. It There's does. too much stuff. And not in a bad way. It actually is better than I'm making it no, sound. No, it's in a bad way. Oh, I didn't think so. <laughs> but anyways, uh, yeah, so basically they are able to make friends with the, the underground underwater people and convince them to mutate back to um, their old ways so they can be half on land, half under under, and be friends and happy, and then they, they leave uh, the planet. So, Steve, what do you think of the ambergris element? So there, so I think what I said before is is accurate. There's just too much stuff. And, you can, and the worst part is there was more. I can tell there was a version of this script where there was more because mm. – they they like you know they go before the court and they eventually meet the young ones. The young ones are like, oh, there's ruins that have the MacGuffin information you need to know how to turn back. And there was no discovery. And then all of a sudden they were being chased by the big monster. And then all of a sudden the monster was dead. And it's because there was clearly a version where they had to discover the thing they needed, get it, and then find a way to defeat the monster. And they ran out of time. They didn't have time for that. <laughs> So they're like, they need to get the thing and then kill the thing in like 15 to 20 seconds. <laughs> um, there were some okay parts. Um, I, I do anytime that we get to see something in Star Trek, the animated series, that's just something they couldn't have done on the original exactly. series. I love the big monster and the underwater stuff is all stuff they just couldn't have done. Yeah, and the mermaid people. And uh, all that I, I liked it in this one episode. We got both a, like a Star Trek boat and a Star Trek submarine. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a toy maker's dream this episode. That's true. They keep adding crafts. Um, it was an interesting premise. Suddenly they have lungs. And I like the idea that the mutations were purposeful. 
Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't evolution. It was something they chose to do to themselves. Um, and then great, just MacGuffin use the ruins with the records. But then the this creature chasing them and getting killed immediately after it was I was like, oh, it was too much. Didn't a building fall on it or something? Yeah, and in like a very not pull, not drawn out chase scene. Yeah. Um, some things I struggled with. Um, I didn't understand how Scotty and Bones got like gently ejected from the pod when it was attacked. <laughs> but somehow Kirk and Spock end up like face down in the water mutants. <laughs> Good point. Um, I didn't like that any time they were swimming in profile, they both turned into white ghosts. <laughs> that was odd. <laughs> it was a weird choice. And then uh, as I said, the, the chase with the beast just resolved too, resolved way too easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, this one's lower for me. Oh, well, wow. see, this I season in general, I think I was more impressed by the thing that you also liked, which was the the great premise and being something they definitely could only do in this animated format at this time period um, yeah. with the budgets they had. And I think that was it's just a, it was a cool, different story that had nothing to do with space gods. So I really like that. You know, it's like a unique story about uh, an alien premise, you know, that like an alien world that would have forcefully evolved underwater. That's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, this is more of a higher one for me, surprisingly. <laughs> you piece of shit. <laughs> well, we got some trivia for this. Um, Do we? A couple of the swimming animations that you mentioned where they look all white. Uh, that's because they were traceovers of the swimming animation from Aquaman, the, the cartoon show from 1967, uh, which is also a filmation show. And this is why Spock frequently seems to be drawn s- as smaller than Kirk because it was like a the sidekick of Aquaman or whatever. <laughs> um, the Enterprise crew encourage half the planet's population to stop living underseas and to colonize the surface. This is a major culture change to the aquatic species as a total disregard for the non-interference prime directive central to Starfleet, which is true. They're like, ah, pre-warp civilization. We'll just change everything about them. There's one thing I know. It's that 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 is meaningless. <laughs> that is what? The prime directive is meaningless. Oh, yeah. No one follows that. There's one thing that Star Trek has taught me time and time again is that no one actually gives a shit about the prime directive. It's just all lip service. Um, and apparently in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, there is an allusion to a similar water-based planet inhabited by aquatic people. But it's not said if this is the exact planet. But it could be. That's, that's okay, pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So what are our uh, Trek connection, Muppet connections here? Oh, bam. Do I got him? <laughs> Uh, the 2017 movie Going in Style is about, uh, I think, like old man bank robbers. Mm. And they, yeah, three older friends. And in this movie is both Alan Arkin, but also Christopher Lloyd, who played Krug in Star Trek Three. That's true. <laughs> uh, Alan, Ar- Alan Arkin's birthday is March 26th, and so is Leonard Nimoy's. Oh, nice. Bam. Trek connected. <laughs> But these are basically connected because they're the same episode. They were so similar. Of course, they both involve angry beasts attacking the crew uh, whose situation is resolved far too, far too, far too quickly. Oh. The red underwater beast uh, attacking them and Alan Arkin. And Alan Arkin, yes. Uh, both involve a scientific breakthrough that transforms people instantly. The mutation... Uh, in syringe in the animated series episode and then the Declan Hyde thing. I said the same thing. Both feature transformations. Alan and Kermit and the bunnies into Jekyll Hyde creatures and the captain Spock into Aquins. Aquins. Uh, Yes, and both have uh, someone experiencing short-term memory loss. We have Alan Arkin when he transforms back to his regular self. He doesn't remember what happened while he was in Hyde form. 
And Kirk and Spock, when they wake up, mutated. They were uh, purposely given mind-altering things they wouldn't remember. So yeah, oh, damn, damn. Oh, what's that noise? Transporter ah. malfunction. Oh yeah. Transporter malfunction. All right, it's the part of the show where we transport one character to one episode and vice versa. So what you got for us, Steve? Straight to Muppets this week. I'm going to bring over the Red Beast and replace Alan Arkins, Mr. Hyde. <laughs> Just ripping apart the bunny hills and terrorizing the backstage. That's similar to what I did. Muppets of Star Trek. I'm going to have the old lady with the snake to come replace the sea monster. <laughs> okay, nice. I don't know why, but that'd be hilarious. Uh, Muppet to Trek this week, I'm going to bring over all the bunnies and replace the Aquins with Kirk and Spock uh, gaining white puffy ears <laughs> and transforming into rabbits, and the crew must save them. I love that. Um, Star Trek to Muppets, I'm going to have one of the Aquins come over to replace any person who turns into a Hyde character, because even that bad animation would be better than the terrible eyebrows and teeth they had in this episode. <laughs> it was bad. Yeah, it was. But that brings us to the end of episode 93 of the Muppet Trek podcast. Join us next time for the Muppet Show with special guest Doug Henning. An animated series episode, The Slaver Weapon. So from the lovers, the dreamers, and us. Live long and prosper, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Muppet Trek podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by A Play on Nerds. 